I have been wanting and intending to come to Romans for years now. And now that that day has finally arrived, I want to tell you what's on my heart as we look ahead to the next, yes, three years in this glorious book. My fervent plea to God is that in the years to come, we, along with many others that we don't even know yet, will look back upon this day, Sunday, September 2nd, 2018, as the day that we embarked upon Paul's letter to the Romans, a day when the seeds of an awakening began to be planted in this church, the fruit of which were felt throughout Nixa and Missouri and even to the ends of the earth. Now, I realize, even as I say that, that that sounds grandiose. It sounds melodramatic. It sounds outrageously optimistic. But I think that I have good reason for such a hope. Because more than any other book in the entire canon of Scripture, this book has been used by God over and over and over again to awaken His church and to alter the course of history. James Boyce wrote that there has never been and probably never will be an important spiritual movement in the history of the church that cannot be connected as cause and effect with a deeper knowledge of the truths of this book. Romans is an explosive book. It is packed with a thousand megatons of divine, sovereign energy for the awakening of sinners and the awakening of churches. And my aim and my prayer this morning is to light the fuse on this book. As we begin, therefore, I would like to trace something of the history of this book's influence upon the historic Christian church. So I'm going to take you back to the fourth century and to a philosopher and a teacher from Hippo in North Africa. Though a brilliant man, Aurelius Augustine, like so many of the pagan intellectuals of his day, lived a debauched and immoral lifestyle. In his Confessions, he writes that for a while he was intellectually convinced of the truth of Christ, but sin held upon his heart a vice-like grip such that he was unable and unwilling to renounce his sin and to commit his life to Christ until one day in September of 386 A.D., while visiting Milan, Italy, Augustine was walking through the garden of a friend's estate when he heard over the garden wall a child's voice saying in kind of a sing-song voice, tole lege, tole lege, which in Latin means take up and read, take up and read. And something struck Augustine's heart, and he interpreted these words as a sign from God. And so he ran into the house, he grabbed a Bible, he opened it up at random, and he read these words. 
Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Those words come from Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And as Augustine later testified, he said instantly, As the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all gloom of doubt vanished away. And his life was radically transformed. And he went on to become the church's greatest theologian until the time of the Reformation. 1,100 years later, around the year 1515, After centuries and centuries of a pervasive spiritual darkness that suffocated the church of Christ, a young Augustinian monk was sitting in a candlelit tower late at night in a monastery in Wittenberg, Germany, metaphorically, or knowing Luther perhaps literally, beating his head upon the text of Romans 1.17, trying to figure out what Paul meant by these words. For in it... That is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther couldn't understand what Paul meant. He was trying to figure out what Paul meant by the phrase, the righteousness of God, and how God's righteousness, which judges and damns sinners, could possibly be Revealed in the gospel, which means good news towards sinners. The two, the righteousness of God and good news, just did not fit together in Luther's comprehension. For ten years, Martin Luther had lived in a perpetual state of torment about the guilt of his sins. Knowing that he was unrighteous under the law, knowing that God's perfect righteousness required perfect righteousness of any who would enter into his perfect presence in heaven, but not knowing how to attain that righteousness. Nothing that he tried, no work No sacrament, no pilgrimage, no confession, no prayer could assuage his heart of the guilt and damnation which he so acutely felt. This left Luther in utter torment, hating the God that he was commanded to love because this God required of him a righteousness that he could not perform. But that night in 1515, As he read over and over again, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. A divine light from heaven burst into his soul. And here's how Luther described it. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just or the righteous shall live by his faith. Then I grasped That the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. Whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, 
Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Luther's conversion and the doctrine of justification by faith that brought it about sparked the Protestant Reformation that soon spread throughout all of Europe and beyond and restored the true gospel to the church of Christ and forever altered the course of history. Two centuries later, A young Anglican minister named John Wesley was likewise in the throes of anxiety over the state of his soul. He was a brilliant Oxford scholar and had been ordained in the Church of England in 1728. He met regularly with a group of undergraduates led by his brother Charles and attended by, among others, a young man named George Whitfield. This group derisively dubbed the Holy Club by their classmates, met twice a week for prayer and the study of the Greek New Testament. Wesley, according to one commentator, set aside an hour each day for private prayer and reflection. He took the sacrament of Holy Communion each week and set himself to conquer every sin. He fasted twice a week, visited the prisons, and assisted the poor and the sick. In 1735, he traveled to the New World as a missionary to the Indians of Georgia, and it went miserably. He was an utter failure. He couldn't get along with his colleagues, and he nearly died of disease. And on his way home, on the ship, he wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? However, by God's providence, also aboard that ship were some German Moravian Christians who made a deep impression upon Wesley. They seemed, he wrote, to actually love God and to know that God loved them. And so when he arrived in London, he sought out one of the Moravian leaders and through their conversations, he became, quote, clearly convinced of my unbelief of the want or lack of that faith whereby alone we are saved. And on the night of May 24th, 1738, Wesley was invited by the German Moravian brethren to a meeting on Aldersgate Street. In Wesley's own words, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And from that moment on, Wesley along with Whitfield, who had been converted a few years earlier, was used mightily of God to awaken a dead and formal church on both sides of the Atlantic to the reality of God's grace, to the necessity of the new birth, and to the faith which alone saves. This revival is known to history as the first great awakening, and its impact upon the church and indeed upon the world cannot be overstated. At the beginning of the 19th century, another awakening broke out, this time on the European continent, in Switzerland and France, and stretching all the way into Holland. 
the Protestant churches of Europe were in a dead and dismal state until 1816 when a Scottish missionary by the name of Robert Haldane was in Geneva, Switzerland, sitting on a park bench. And he began to listen to some of the conversations that were going on around him. And one caught his attention in particular. And it was going on between two theological students who were training for the ministry there in Geneva. Recognizing that though they were students of theology, students training for the ministry, they were blind to the truth of the gospel, he struck up a conversation with them and he invited them along with their friends in the theology department to his apartment twice a week for Bible study. There he expounded for them verse upon verse Paul's epistle to the Romans. And one by one, those students were converted and went on to become the leaders of the evangelical awakening on the continent, which became known as Haldane's Revival. Haldane's exposition of Romans was later put into print and published and is now considered one of the standard reformed evangelical commentaries on the book. It is still in print today. There are other stories of this book's explosive impact, which I don't even have time to recount. One thinks of the role which the book of Romans and the writings of Luther played in the life of John Bunyan, the 17th century Baptist and author of The Pilgrim's Progress, a book which has been translated and published into more languages than any other book outside of the Bible. Or the way in which God used Romans 3.25 to bring William Cooper, the 18th century poet and the author of hymns like There is a Fountain and God Moves in a Mysterious Way to Saving Faith. As Cooper walked through the garden of the mental asylum where he had been committed due to his many suicide attempts, he found there by God's providence a Bible lying open on a park bench and he opened this Bible to the third chapter of Romans, and he read these words, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Cooper wrote, immediately I received the strength to believe it and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone down upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. And unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport, and I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. My own life has been remarkably influenced by the book of Romans. Many years ago when I was drowning in doubt and despair as to the state of my soul and my standing before God, even though I too was a student training for the ministry, it was the doctrine of justification by faith alone expounded in these pages, particularly chapters 3 and 4, that saved my life and gave to me an assurance which is more precious to me than gold. I have a Bible still on my shelf from those days. And if you were to turn to the Old Testament, you would find much of it, the pages of them, still crisp and white. But if you were to turn to Romans, you would find the pages yellow and worn and frayed from use. 
What will your story with Romans be? Only God knows how he intends to use this book in your life over the next handful of years. Only God knows how he intends to use this book in the life of this church in the days to come. But my prayer is that its impact will be exponential, affecting not only you, but your family and your neighbors and people that you haven't even met yet. So I want us, First Baptist Nixon, to mark this day, Sunday, September 2nd, 2018, as the day that we lit the fuse on the book of Romans. And we prayed together that God would be pleased to cause it to explode in our minds and in our hearts and in our church with all the divine energy of his sovereign grace given to us in Christ. My aim this morning is simply to introduce this letter, which will occupy our attention for the better part of the next three years. And in light of that purpose, we're only going to look at verses 1 and 7 today, and we're going to leave verses 2 to 6 for next week. Look with me down at verse 1, where Paul introduces himself to the Roman church. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So right from the start, Paul tells us three things about himself. He is, number one, a servant of Christ. He's, number two, an apostle. And he's, number three, set apart for the gospel of God. So let's look at these three descriptors of the author of this epistle. Number one, Paul describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, a doulos of Jesus Christ. That word more literally means a slave. A servant is someone who has been employed. A slave is someone who has been purchased. Paul says, I have been purchased by Christ. I belong to him. I Owe to him all obedience and all devotion and all affection. For Paul, the, the word doulos was a, was a loaded word. And to get something of what Paul meant by that word, I'm going to take you to Galatians chapter 1. And you ought to just put another sheet of paper in there because I'm going to be referring back to it a couple of times this morning. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul uses the same word. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And look how he sets those two in opposition to one another. In other words, you can't do both. You can't seek the approval of man and simultaneously seek the approval of God. So Paul continues, Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant, a doulos of Christ. Therefore, to be a slave of Christ is to no longer seek the approval of man, but to seek the approval of your master, who is Jesus. And this is a tremendous shift from the way all of us are by nature. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because we're going to spend several weeks looking into the dismal depths of the depravity of the human heart when we get later on into Romans 1 and into Romans 2. 
But suffice it to say for this morning that all men, without exception, including every one of us gathered here this morning, are born into this world man-pleasers, caring far more about the opinion of men than we do about the opinion of God. Therefore, in order for Paul, or any one of us for that matter, to make this radical 180 degree shift from a man pleaser to a God pleaser and thereby become a slave of Christ Jesus can only be accounted for by a seismic shift in our nature. And that is exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. So I've saved the best testimony to the life-changing, world-altering power of these truths for last. Nowhere is the power of the gospel, the gospel demonstrated in these pages, more exhibited than in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Born into an upper-class Jewish family from Tarsus in Cilicia, that's on the southern coast of Turkey, Paul was something of a prodigy. He was brilliant He was self-disciplined, he excelled in his studies, and he was sent to Jerusalem to train under the feet of the best, a rabbi named Gamaliel. In Jerusalem, Paul ascended quickly through the ranks of the religious elite, and he became widely known for his knowledge and for his zeal for the law. And while in Jerusalem, he encountered a new Jewish sect known as the Way. These were followers of a crucified Galilean rabbi whom they claimed had risen from the dead, had ascended into heaven, and was now both Messiah and Lord. Well, Paul the Pharisee could not abide such blasphemy, particularly being uttered in the holy city. And he considered these Christians an offense to God and a danger to the Jewish nation. So Paul went on a murderous rampage taking the leading role in the death of Stephen and receiving from the Sanhedrin authorization to travel to Damascus in order to find, arrest, and bring back to Jerusalem in chains any Christians that he would find there. But on the road to Damascus, Paul himself was arrested by none other than the risen Christ. And you know the rest of the story. But what you may not realize is how remarkably similar Paul's conversion is that to the conversions of Luther and Wesley. How the torments of soul that Wesley and Luther underwent were going on likewise in Paul's heart. You see, with Luther and Wesley, their problem was that they were tormented by the righteous standard of the law and by their failure to meet that standard. No matter how many works they performed, no matter how many prayers they prayed, no matter how hard they worked at being religious, their conscience was continually condemned before God. This was Paul's experience as well. He writes about it in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, where he he speaks of the effect which his study of the law had upon his heart. He says, the law said, do not covet. But the harder I tried not to covet, the more my heart produced covetousness of every kind. 
Paul says that once he was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and the law killed him. He says in verse 10 of chapter 7, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Paul was a dead man before his conversion. The picture that emerges is one of Paul trying and trying and trying to keep the law, trying to attain to God's holy and righteous standards, even succeeding somewhat in an external sense, but knowing down deep all the time that he was, as Jesus had called the rest of the Pharisees, nothing but a whitewashed tomb. And it is without a doubt that there are some of us here today who know exactly what Paul is talking about. You try and you try and you try to do all of the Christian things, to read the Christian Bible, to pray the Christian prayers, to attend the Christian worship, to go to the Christian church, to appear to all external standards as if you were a Christian, but your conscience condemns you. This book is going to set you free. Paul describes his own conversion in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, watch this, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It was the gospel that Paul would eventually set forth in Romans, the gospel of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, based upon a righteousness from God given through faith in Christ that set Paul free from the law of sin and death. Just like Luther, who had to regard all of his religious works, all of his sacramental merit as being nothing in order to gain the righteousness of Christ, just like Wesley, who had to regard all of his astute learning, all of his religious knowledge, all of his holy zeal, all of his ordination credentials as nothing in order to receive the righteousness of Christ. So Paul had to regard all of his human merit as nothing in order to receive everything from Jesus. Just like Luther and just like Wesley, Paul was a miserable, though zealot, religious professional. 
who was powerfully and profoundly converted by the gospel of justification through faith in the risen Christ. Paul was rescued and redeemed from his futile attempts at keeping the law, and he was given Jesus' perfect righteousness. And because of that, for the very first time in his life, Paul was enabled to love the God who loved him and gave up Christ to save him. And he joyfully submitted the rest of his life to pleasing Christ and to making him known. That's how Paul, the Pharisee, became Paul, the slave of Christ Jesus. Second, Paul identifies himself as one who is called to be an apostle. All right, so if the previous descriptor, a slave of Christ Jesus, identifies Paul's relationship to Christ, this one identifies his authority from Christ and his relationship to the church. There are times in Paul's writings where he will use the word apostle in a less technical sense than he does here. In the sense of one who is a messenger sent out by a church or one who is an accredited missionary. But here he's using the word in its loftiest New Testament sense. That of a spokesman specifically appointed and ordained by the risen Christ to lay the doctrinal foundation of the new covenant church. In this sense of the word of apostle. Paul was one of a select few who had been personally chosen, individually gifted, and sent out by Christ, bearing Christ's own authority. And Paul introduces himself in this way because he's never been to Rome. He's never been to the church. He didn't plant the church. He doesn't know the people, by and large, to whom he is writing. Yet, he is claiming authority over them to teach And he wants them to receive his words, the words that he writes in Romans, as if they were the very words of God. Because they are. Because he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Again, in Galatians 1, we see what Paul thought of his apostleship. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is the very same gospel that we're going to be studying together over the next three years. Why should you give yourself to three years of study in the gospel of Romans? Because it's not man's gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. He did not receive it from man. He was not taught it by man. He received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. This is the gospel of God. Which is how he introduces himself finally. He says he was set apart for the gospel of God. Which speaks to the outworking of his apostolic office. Paul's primary responsibility... His primary aim and calling in life was to preach the gospel of God. When he says he was set apart for the gospel of God, that's shorthand for what he says in Galatians 1.15. But when he who had set me apart, same word, before I was born, who called me by his grace, 
when he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, he goes on to say, I did not consult with anyone. Jesus arrested Paul on the road to Damascus not only to save him, but to send him to preach to the Gentiles that through him the nations might be saved. And note that what Paul was set apart to preach was the gospel of God. He was sent to preach the good news of God in Jesus Christ. Because apart from Jesus Christ, that's why Jesus and his death on the cross stands at the very center of this book. It's in every chapter. Because apart from Christ, God is not good news for sinners. But in Christ he is. And therefore the gospel is designed to take sinners and to bring them to God. God is the goal of the gospel. Here's how Piper puts it. This is why the epistle has had the effect it has. It is from God and through God and to God. God chose the author before he was born. God purchased his freedom by the death of his son. God called him to be an apostle. And then God gave him a gospel, the gospel of God himself. So God is at the bottom, and God is at the top, and God is in the middle. In other words, in these pages, over the next three years, you will encounter the living, majestic, sovereign, holy God as close and as near to unveiled as he appears anywhere in all of Scripture. And maybe, just maybe we pray your encounter will be every bit as powerful and life-changing as Paul's on the Damascus Road or Luther's in the Wittenberg Monastery or Wesley's in Aldersgate Street. Because what this church needs more than anything is an encounter with the living God. And Romans is the best place for us to look. The second introductory item we need to examine is the audience to this letter. To whom does Paul write? Well, now we're going to jump down to verse 7. If you'll notice, Paul ends verse 1 by saying, I've been set apart for the gospel of God. And then in verses 2 to 6, he goes on this long parentheses in which he defines what the gospel of God is. That's what we're going to study next week. But he resumes his introductory remarks down in verse 7. To all those in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome. Based on internal evidence from the letter itself, most scholars place Paul in Corinth at the time of writing. And if we compare that location to the generally accepted timeline of Paul's missionary journeys, this would put the time of writing somewhere around 57 or 58 A.D. At this time, Paul is headed to Jerusalem. We'll learn all of this in Romans 15. He's headed to Jerusalem to deliver the gift for the impoverished saints in Judea, which he has been collecting all throughout his third missionary journey. Paul's hope is to deliver the offering and thereby repair the rift that has been growing between the Jewish church in Judea and the Gentile churches that Paul has been planting around the Mediterranean world. 
And after he has delivered this gift, Paul will say in Romans 15 that he hopes then to come to Rome on his way to Spain where he's going to take the gospel where it has not been preached because Paul's desire is not to lay on another man's foundation but to lay new foundations for the gospel and for the church. So Paul's never been to Rome, but he's hoping to come to Rome And he wants the Roman church then to help him get to Spain. And so before he heads back to Jerusalem, he sends this letter on to Rome in order to, as it were, pave the way for his arrival. But clearly that's not Paul's only aim in writing, or else this letter would have been much, much shorter, like two chapters. He's got another purpose in mind when he sits down in the city of Corinth, to send this letter to the Roman church. Now, scholars are divided as to what Paul may have heard about the church of Rome that would have called for such a a rich yet forceful declaration of the truth of the gospel. But from the content of Romans, it seems plain that there were some theological and social troubles related to the Jewish-Gentile composition of the Roman church. That discussion is going to have to wait another time in another venue. We'll deal with those questions as they arise in the text. What concerns me this morning is the specific aim that Paul expresses in verse 7. Namely, that the church in Rome would know themselves loved by God and called to be his saints. And that's my purpose in preaching Romans. I want you to know yourself loved by God. Personally, savingly, affectionately loved. And I want you to know yourself called by God. Individually, sovereignly, and effectually called to belong to Jesus Christ and to become his saints. That's my aim in the next three years. If God, by His grace, enlightens our minds and awakens us to the knowledge of His love for us and His call to us, then this time will have been well spent. So this morning, let's focus in closing on those two majestic realities. We don't need to dwell here long. We will come back to these two realities again and again throughout this letter. This sermon is only to introduce us to the most powerful book ever written and to the most powerful themes ever expounded. Do you want to know what will radically change your life? Do you want to know what will radically change this church? Do you want to know what will cause the kind of world-changing, life-altering impact that we saw in the lives of Augustine and Luther and Wesley and Haldane and Bunyan and Cooper and so many others? Number one, it is knowing that God loves you. Now, I want to be clear about something. I don't mean it's knowing that God loves you in the same way in which God loves the world. I mean knowing that God loves you. 
The love of God of which Paul speaks here is not the general and universal love of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That's not the love of which Paul speaks here. That's true. That's biblical. It's not Romans. The love of which Paul speaks is a personal, particular love. The love of Ephesians 2.4. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive. Not the love with which he loves them, whom he has not made alive. It's the love with which he loves us, whom he has made alive. It's the love of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, yet I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the kind of love that Paul speaks of. It is not a love that is known by logical inference. That's the kind of love that I'm afraid most Christians know of. It goes like this. God loves the world. I'm part of the world. Therefore, God loves me. That's a logical inference. That's not the kind of love that Paul speaks of here. The kind of love that Paul speaks of is a love which is personal. It is individual. It is particular. It is electing. Look what he says. To those in Rome who are beloved of God. There's 400,000 citizens of Rome, but I'm not writing to all 400,000 citizens of Rome. I'm writing to those in Rome, among those 400,000, who are loved by God. This is not the love of God for the world. It is the love of Christ for his bride. Husbands, when you asked your wives to marry you, did you place an ad in the classified section of the paper that said, I love everyone, therefore, whosoever will may come and marry me. Is that the way you got your bride? No, you went to your beloved. You got down on one knee. You told her that you loved her above everyone else in the world and that you wanted to spend the rest of your life with her. Paul's aim and my aim is that you would know yourself loved by God like that. Secondly, it's an experiential love. That is, it is a love which is felt and experienced by the power of the Holy Spirit, not just intuited and inferred by the power of your natural mind. It's the kind of love that Paul speaks of in Romans 5. The kind of love that allows us to rejoice in our sufferings. How? Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out, King James, shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. 
This love is experiential. It overflows in our hearts when the Spirit indwells us. That's the kind of love that changes a church, and that's the kind of love that a man will lay down his life for. Generic love does not change churches, and it does not save sinners. Particular, personal, experiential love does. Second, radical, life-altering, church-awakening change happens when we know ourselves called by God. Again, This is not the general universal call of the gospel which offers salvation to all who believe. This is a particular call. That is, it is an individual call that is given to those and only those who are electingly and savingly loved by God. So to return to my analogy, this is not the classified ad kind of invitation to marriage. It is rather a drive to her house, go to her front door, take her by the hand kind of proposal. It is particular. And it is effectual. It accomplishes what it asks. It creates what it commands. It enlightens the mind. It gives sight to the blind. It makes the deaf hear. It changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It awakens the dead. It is why Paul can say so confidently in Romans 8.30 that all those whom he predestined loved. He did call. And all those whom he called, he did justify. And all those whom he justified, he did glorify. Paul cannot make such a confident assertion if that call is not individual, particular, and effectual, creating the very faith that it calls forth, the faith that justifies and the faith that glorifies. This call, in other words, is not an invitation. It is a divine and sovereign summons to life and faith and love and repentance. And it is because of this call and only because of this call that you belong to Jesus Christ and that you are one of the saints of God. So the question I would ask is, do you know yourself loved like this? Do you know yourself called like this? Because that's why we're in Romans. I desperately want to know this love. And I want to know the power of this call. And I want to know this God who loves me individually. This Christ who died for me individually. This spirit who calls me and indwells me individually. And if that's what you want as well then let's light the fuse on this book and let's wait and see what God is going to do as it explodes.